0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Diving Board Podcast. I am your host, Jill, and thank you so much for joining me on the third ever episode of the Diving Board Podcast. Hopefully, third time's a charm, and I really nail it this time. God willing, (laughs) for all of our sakes. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, The feedback for the last two episodes has been so kind. Thank you all so much for listening and giving me really, really nice feedback. I really appreciate it. I'm really grateful and flattered and honestly relieved that everyone is enjoying the podcast so much because I'm enjoying making it so much. I enjoy every second of doing diving board. So I'm really happy that People are enjoying the episodes. Thank you so much. And I hope that everyone had, you know, as as good of a week as possible with everything going on in the world. I know it's it's never easy in this world, but it's sometimes are harder than others. And this is a exceptional, an exceptionally hard time. So I hope everyone is hanging in there. And I always feel like my life has the most meaning and purpose. When I'm helping other people. So I really hope that this podcast kind of gives you an escape for the next hour or so because it really is my escape doing the podcast. It really is kind of a source of serotonin for me and happiness. So I hope it's a source for you as well. And uh, we had a really nice weekend here in Chicago. It was actually really warm out on Sunday. It was like 67 degrees, and that's like super tropical, especially for March. So super exciting. Uh, it was a great day to stay inside and work on a podcast and research it and work on a lot of grad school homework. <laughs> so yeah, perfect day. Uh, no, I, I went out. I enjoyed that Saturday it was a lot colder on Sunday so I deep cleaned my apartment from like head to toe from h to t and it looks so good every time I deep clean my apartment I always think like why is Architectural Digest not knocking on my door to take pictures of this beautiful 250 square foot shoebox of mine on the north side of Chicago. So <laughs> I'm waiting for that for that knock. It's happening any minute now. Maybe we'll catch it on audio. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'm really excited to get into this topic today Uh, it's definitely at the forefront very current information when people are interested in and uh i'm just excited because i've always known about this as a kid but i learned so much in the last few weeks and also just researching this podcast and it really was And I know this term is so overused, but after researching this full story, I mean, this story really was a cultural reset. Uh, Life in society before this happened and life in society after this happened were totally different. So I think that's what makes this particular story so interesting. So on that note, I invite you to get some film in that camera and figure out a way to drive that boat. Because this is the deep dive of the Pam and Tommy sex tape saga. Now, like I said, this story is definitely at the forefront right now because there is a new series on Hulu called Pam and Tommy all about this story. And it's actually been really, really fun to watch. Um, The cast is awesome. Sebastian Stan plays Tommy Lee. Uh, Lily James plays Pamela Anderson. She does an amazing job. And the makeup alone seriously deserves an Emmy. Like She looks so much like Pamela Anderson. Seth Rogen plays Rand Gautier and Andrew Dice Clay plays Bushy Perrano. So really, really fun cast. Um, like I said, I've enjoyed watching it. Uh, I really want to disclaim that Pam and Tommy were not involved at all in the making of this. It really is Rand Gautier's account, and it's loosely based on the Rolling Stone article written by Amanda Chicago Lewis in 2014. I mean, how cool is that name? But uh, I think it's kind of dangerous when you're making something off of just one person's account, but, uh, really, really interesting story. Uh, I just want to preface and say that the show is not in, chronological order. And I'm definitely a chronological girl. The uh, show definitely likes to like zigzag back and forth and kind of like zip and play with the timeline a little bit. So this episode will definitely give you the direct timeline of events. And since the series is eight parts, for one, I don't think it needed to be that long. But I mean, who am I to judge? I took an hour and a half to talk about the bling ring, and I probably could have went on another hour if I was left to my own devices. So I am I am no one to say anything, but I don't think it needed to be eight parts. But because it is eight parts, we'd be here all day if I dissected everything that was inaccurate or they got wrong or that they took artistic liberty on. So I just want to say, any of the major events in this story, I will definitely be going over in this episode. So if something that you perceive as major that you watched in the series and I don't go over it, it most likely did not happen. It most likely was artistic liberty that was taken by the creators of the show, which is totally fine. I mean, you have to make a show interesting. So I totally get it. But, you know, this is a diving board podcast, so everything is accurate and laid out exactly how it happened when it happened. So I just wanted to give you that preface if you're comparing it to the show, And this is the Diving Board Podcast, so we take it from the top. Who are Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee? Well, Pamela Anderson is an actress, and she really came to fame on the show Baywatch. She played CJ, and this was in the 90s. The 90s were really kind of like her heyday. She was a major sex symbol in the 90s. She was probably like the 90s version, I would say, of Marilyn Monroe. She was on uh, Playboy 14 times. Hugh Hefner was... Like, obsessed with her. He loved having her on the cover of Playboy. And he really told her, like, she had exemplified the brand of Playboy. Like, she was who Half had in mind when he. Like would think of who the Playboy girl was, so he really, really loved her. She was a huge sex symbol of her time, and Tommy Lee was the drummer of Motley Crue, uh, you know, big hair metal band in the eighties. They sang "Kickstart My Heart." They sang that song, "Girls, Girls, Girls." Love that song. Um, they sold a hundred million dollars. They sold a hundred million records nationwide. I mean, huge band at the time. They were insane. If you watch that movie, The Dirt on Netflix, you definitely can get a better idea of the insanity. That was Motley Crue and Pam and Tommy definitely like the classic rock star couple, totally fascinating, like the sex symbol, rock star drummer dating. We love a celebrity couple in general, but when it's like this fun rock star couple, it just makes it even more interesting and fascinating. But how does such a dynamic, you know, tour de force couple meet? Well, they met on a new year's eve 1994 and they were both at a hollywood bar called sanctuary because of course a bar in hollywood in the 90s is called sanctuary i mean i love that name and pam had actually bought the entire bar in honor of new year's eve uh, a shot of goldschlager because like of course she did i mean if pam anderson is going to buy a shot for the bar Of course, it's Goldschlager. Like, a Goldschlager, it's like so gaudy, but yet so glamorous. And I think that like perfectly embodies the essence of pam anderson so of course she did and tommy lee was also at that bar and when the shot of goldschlager came his way he's very impressed and he's like oh pam anderson is here and he was high on ecstasy and at the time and he took that shot of goldschlager he also had a bottle of Dom Pérignon at his bar chugged that thing mood and went over to Pam to make a move and he sat down next to her and his pickup line was licking her face and this worked on Pamela Anderson. Again, guys, I wouldn't get any ideas this worked because he's Tommy Lee and this was before COVID. So, I think the times of licking people's faces are over. But <laughs> this started a chain reaction and she turned and licked her friend's face. So, the rest was history. Well, sort of. Um in the show, it makes it seem like they got married uh, a few days after meeting, but that wasn't exactly the case. Um, Tommy was getting out of a relationship at that time with a woman named Bobby Brown. Not the makeup mogul, but could you imagine? Like, <laughs> such an insane couple. Uh, but um, no, Bobby Brown was kind of like a rock video vixen. She was the blonde in the Warrant Cherry Pie video. And they were actually engaged at the time that he did the whole like face licking with Pamela Anderson. I mean, men ain't shit, but. <laughs> He was engaged to Bobby Brown, but they were kind of on their way out because. Tommy was a super jealous guy, and he actually got violent with Bobby Brown, so she wanted to get rid of him. And Tommy had actually just gotten out of a marriage to Heather Locklear the year before, and that marriage ended as well because of domestic violence, infidelity, drug use. I mean, you freaking name it. And if you look, he definitely does have a type because Bobby Brown, uh, Heather Locklear, and Pamela Anderson all look very similar. So again, he was engaged to Bobby Brown while he was, you know, ringing up Pamela Anderson's phone left and right. They were playing phone tag for like six weeks and just trying to settle down a date for to get together. And they actually did settle on a date to meet up. And Tommy was so excited. And he actually prepped for this date by purchasing $400 worth of sex toys. And this is 1995. So I'm sure $400 worth of sex toys, I mean... I bet he got a lot. I can't even imagine. and I don't even know if I want to. Um, but because of a work obligation, Pam actually flaked on the date and didn't show up. And Tommy was really, really disappointed. And Pam said, like, sorry, I have to be in Cancun for a work obligation. And, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it. And Tommy said, like, well, I'll meet you there. No worries. I'll fly down to Mexico and let's get together. And she was like, no, no, no. I'm, I'm here for work. I don't know you you're not coming down and it's true that her friend actually told her like stay away from Tommy Lee Pam had just gotten out of a relationship with Brett Michaels and from Poison and just nothing ever good came from when she dated guys in bands so she wanted to stay away and I actually relate quite a bit because for a lot of my adult life I dated men in bands and nothing good came from it either uh, There was one time that I got my septum pierced to impress some guy in a band. I mean, I was like a Tumblr girl. This was like 2011. I was a Tumblr girl and the septum piercing was taken over the world and the the guy I was interested in he was like I really like when girls have septum piercings and I was already like kind of considering it and I was like okay sign sale delivered I'm yours I am getting that piercing so I told my mom like I'm going to the city this weekend and, she, and I was like you know I might come back with a piercing in my septum and she's like what the hell is a septum and I was like well whatever I'm gonna come and she's like the hell you're not you're not doing that so she actually wound up hiding my license so that I wouldn't and I was like what the hell? I already made plans with like a bunch of friends and this guy that we were going to go to like a tattoo shop and get a piercing. What do I do? Uh, I had like the weight of the world on my shoulders because I had to impress this squirrely looking guy who could play the drums. So I was like freaking out. And my friend was like, we have to figure out a way to still make this happen. And I realized that I had emailed a copy of my birth certificate to like my boss at the time because they needed it for record so I was like okay we can go we can print this off and I'll have a copy of the birth certificate so we went and started calling like every tattoo shop in the city of Chicago and they'd pick up and I'd be like hey I want to come in for a piercing I don't have my license click hey I want to come in I only have my birth certificate click no one was giving us the time of day like they didn't want anything to do with us and finally I called a tattoo shop in Wicker Park and I explained the situation and the guy was like well how old are you and I was like 19 and he was like okay and it says you're 19 on the birth certificate and I was like yeah it is my birthday and he's like all right come in at like 10 o'clock I'll see you then I was like bingo and that place is still there and I will not say their name because I ain't no snitch but they were amazing and I went in got the septum pierce at 10 o'clock at night and everyone was there I think I still have a video of it and uh I could not pull it off. I looked like a mascot. I looked like Benny the Bull and it just did not. It was not the vibe, but I um, think I still have that hole in my nose. The scars remind us that the past is real just to impress this guy in a band it is not worth it. Nothing good ever comes of it. I know society definitely makes it seem (laughs) like uh, it's worth it. And having songs written about you is fun and romantic, but it's not. Most of them are not good. And when you break up with them, sometimes they write a breakup ballad and post it on their SoundCloud and then post it on the Facebook newsfeed. And you have to explain it to their entire extended family when they message you up a storm. (laughs) But enough about me. Um, Anyway, (laughs) Pamela Anderson knew that nothing good was going to come of this. So she wanted to tell him, like, stay away, stay away. She said she didn't even tell him where she was in Cancun at the time. But Tommy cannot take no for an answer. And he really does not have any boundaries. And he showed up in Cancun anyway. And Pam was shocked at first because, again, she did not tell him where she even was, but tommy actually went to like every nice hotel in cancun looking for her and he actually was kicked out of the ritz carlton for his clothing and he eventually linked up with pam and she was actually like really really flattered by the efforts he came just to impress her and woo her and she fell and she fell hard they spent the night at senor frogs they spent the next four days partying doing drugs sleeping together having the time of their lives and for some reason on the show it says that like they waited till marriage to have sex with each other and that's just like Not true. I don't know why they made that artistic choice, but okay, we'll go with it. Um, But that's just, that's not what happened. And four days later, a probably... Very intoxicated and high, Tommy Lee. He took off his pinky ring, got down on one knee and told Pamela Anderson, marry me. And she agreed immediately. And they were married the next day on February 19th, 1995, on the beach in Cancun, six weeks after meeting and only about four days of knowing each other. And Tommy wore swim trunks and Pam wore a white bikini. And Pam tells the story of their wedding. And it's actually I know it all sounds so crazy, but it actually is so romantic. Like she says that Tommy picked her up after they exchanged vows and like carried her out into the water and everyone kind of like followed in after them. And I don't know. I'm kind of a hopeless romantic at heart and that I would actually live for that. That sounds really, really fun. And, you know, obviously this sounds crazy and people think it's really impulsive, but Tommy's parents also got married after only knowing each other for a few days. And they didn't even speak the same language. Um, Tommy's mother was Greek and his father was American. So, I mean, he grew up with that. And Pam Anderson, uh, since the Tommy Lee marriage, she has been married five times in her life. Um, So, I mean, this is a couple where they both kind of have a different view of marriage. And, hey, you know, more power to them. It's a free country. And it's true on the way home that Pam was asking Tommy, like, the most general basic questions because they did not know each other. Tommy recounts this. He said it was, like, the most bizarre thing of his life. But, like, Pam was saying, like, so where do you live? And like, what do you like for breakfast? Uh, just these like crazy questions that you would think you would know about your husband. But since they really didn't know each other, they kind of had to have those types of conversations. And this was such a media frenzy and all these paparazzi met them at the airport. I mean, it was insane. I, I'm i trying to think of like an analogy of, there's not really like rock couples anymore, which is unfortunate. Um, I guess it would be like if, if Kanye West like married Julia Fox after knowing each other, like for a few days, it like they went to Paris and came back married. Like it's insane. And again, it's true. Pam had no idea where Tommy lived. And, you know, let's dive into that. Uh, Pam, she actually moved into Tommy's house in Malibu, and it was a mansion that he had been renovating for a while. He really wanted to turn this place into like a love palace. It had heart-shaped doors. It was three stories tall, and it had this swing that would like go, and it would swung over this like white grand piano. It was insane. And they were getting marble imported from Italy. They were just spending money so insanely. Like their interior designer friends said they spent money like they hated it. Like they were just pouring money into this house. The house is really cool. I don't know if you ever saw the episode of Tommy Lee on MTV Cribs, but I always loved that episode as a kid because it really was a very, very cool house, but just poured an insane amount of money into it. And they were actually working with a electrician named Ran Gautier. He was doing a lot of the electric on the house. And He spent months just like watching Tommy live this fantasy life. Like he was hanging with Pam. He was, you know, smoking weed, sipping martinis. And all while, you know, Rand worked on stripping the wires all over the house. And Tommy honestly was a nightmare to work with. Because like Rand would say, like I would get all of these like light switches all set up where Tommy told me to put them. And then Tommy would be like, actually, I want them over there. Move them all over there. And it's like, dude, he's just—he was a horrible, horrible person to work with. And at this time, Rand was about twenty thousand in the hole from Tommy and Pam. And one day, they just abruptly said, like, this work sucks and we don't like any of the work everyone's doing. So they abruptly fired all of these contractors without paying them for like months of work. And in the series, it makes it seem like Pam didn't know about this. But Rand said she also was involved and she knew the contractors weren't getting paid. And he was honestly actually willing to just eat the money like, whatever, I don't want to deal with this. But when he went back to collect his tools with his colleague, Troy Tompkins, when he got into the house to get his you know, tools back, Tommy held them at gunpoint, ordering them like, get the F off my property. And... Yo, Tommy Lee, and I don't want to make this seem like it's like a smear campaign against Tommy Lee, but like he was not a good guy. And I, I think Sebastian Stan plays such an exaggerated version of him and kind of like a cartoon character. Like he's like one of the animaniacs, like so crazy. But like he was a really bad dude. Like he actually held these two guys at gunpoint and did not allow them to get their tools back after not paying them for work. So. You know, just not, not good. And, you know, Rand, this pissed him off. So bad. He said he'd never been, you know, a popular guy, but he'd never been held at gunpoint before. Like, this was a new low. And, like, this messed with him. It made him feel small and he was over it. He wanted revenge on Tommy Lee. He wanted to make him known, like, yo, you're a human being. You're not invincible. And that's the thing. Tommy did feel invincible. He got away with so much. Uh, he got away with so much. You can look up more of what Tommy Lee has done because, like, I, I want to stay kind of focused to this specific story, but he just not, not a good person. And Rand wanted revenge. So he began casing that Malibu mansion out for months. And, you know, no one really noticed that Rand's car was outside because there was always a ton of paparazzi. Again, this was a media frenzy, this couple. So there was always people around the mansion. And like I said, they were always doing renovation work. So there was contractors all the time. No one noticed Rand. Rand. And this is kind of where the timeline is wrong in the show. But in the summer of 1995, that's when Pam and Tommy take their official honeymoon to Lake Mead. And this is where they also film the contents on the infamous tape. And Lake Mead, side note, is actually really cool if you've ever been. It's like right by the Hoover Dam. Uh, so if you're in Vegas, like it's, it's cool. It's a man-made lake. Uh, I don't know if that's where I take my honeymoon, but it's, you know, to each his own. Uh, but yes, this is when they film each other. And at this point, Rand had actually already begin casing out their house. Uh, by the time they get home, Pam and Tommy, they really are trying to get pregnant. And Pam actually tragically miscarries her first pregnancy In the show, it kind of alludes to the fact that Pam miscarries because of the stress of the tape being stolen, but the tape had not been stolen yet. Rand was still casing out the place, but it was very stressful for Pam because of the paparazzi and the media frenzy. They really had no privacy. And even when she went to the hospital in in an ambulance after she miscarried Tommy said that the paparazzi was actually cutting off the ambulance to get a shot. It's just a horrible situation, and these people are piranhas. So. By October 1995, Pam finds out she's pregnant again. She's pregnant with her first son, Brandon. And this is also the month that Rand decides to make his move. So about five days before Halloween, Rand decides, okay, I'm going to get this Tibetan yak rug and cover myself and I'm going to run into Pam and Tommy's yard. He gets this Tibetan yak rug because the couple had a sheepdog and if he covered himself with the rug, he kind of resembled the dog so if you know security saw it on the surveillance tape they would think it was just the dog running around i mean i guess it's clever i i mean if you're casing out the joint for five months it's not a huge master plan but i'll i'll give it to him so uh through his work at the house he knew that tommy had actually kept a huge safe in their garage which tommy had turned into his recording studio and this was As they would say in French, uh, his pièce de résistance, his crowning jewel, this was what he wanted because he knew that Tommy and Pam stored their jewelry and guns in it. So it had a decent amount of valuables in the safe and and he wanted it. So he entered the, the garage through their bedroom. And in the show, it shows him like flipping off Pam and Tommy as they're sleeping, but Obviously, I don't think that happened. Um, I'm sure this happened when they were out of town. I'm sure nobody was home at the time. And um, the safe was hidden kind of like behind a bunch of recording equipment. And it was the wall was carpeted. So they hid the safe behind that. So if you didn't work in the house, you wouldn't have known the safe was there. And Tommy said like the equipment that was in front of The wall that the safe was behind was like extremely heavy. But Rand says he was able to move all of the equipment, get the safe out, and then replace all of the equipment the way he found it. And he also claims that he single-handedly got this 500-pound, six-feet-tall safe onto a dolly and wheeled it out himself to his truck. And he said that the metal in the safe activated the gates and the gates just opened on their own. Um... I mean, okay. Uh, this story has definitely changed a little bit because in the 90s, Rand was reported telling the story that his partner, Troy Tompkins, who uh, Tommy had also held at gunpoint, and his wife, Dominique Sardell, Troy's wife, Dominique Sardell, helped Rand with the plan. They said that like Troy Tompkins was waiting in like a U-Haul truck to help him with the safe. Uh, Both Tompkins and Dominique Sardell had actually worked also for Pam and Tommy. Tompkins always really admired Tommy's guns. And Dominique Sardell advised Pam, like, keep all your jewelry in a safe. So they were actually the people that Pam and Tommy suspected first when they noticed the safe was missing. And Tommy himself in his memoir says like, there is no way Rand could have carried that safe out. He said it was like so heavy, so big, and especially all of the equipment, like all of the equipment. There is no way he did that on his own. And I agree. I don't think he did that on his own. I'm sure the couple was on vacation and he noticed they were gone for a few days. So he made his move, probably got a few guys. It just this doesn't sound feasible. But this is what Rand says. So once Rand gets the safe, he brings it to like a secured spot and he immediately tries to start opening it. He's like hacking at it with a saw and immediately he, and eventually he cracks it open. Inside are a bunch of Tommy's guns, Pam's Rolex, the Cartier watch, some pictures, you know, the white bikini she wore in their wedding and a high eight tape. So if you don't know what a high eight tape, if you're too young to know, Congratulations! Um, a high eight tape was kind of it was like a little bit bigger than a cassette tape, and it would go into a camcorder, and you know you would record whatever you wanted on the camcorder, and then you could pop out that tape from a camcorder, and in some VHSs, there was a compartment that you could open and put that little high eight tape in, and then you could just pop it onto a VCR and watch it. Honestly, I honestly feel like I've like time traveled from the medieval times and like are telling you some like archaic um, technology. That's like so weird about being a millennial. Like I remember using all this stuff, but then I grew up with like current day technology. It's crazy, just like we were born at such a weird time. But I always used hi eight tapes because I was always a kid who would like make movies and stuff, so that is what we would use. And Rand was really curious to see what was on this tape. And Rand had actually dabbled um, in the adult industry for a few years. He was actually married to an adult star for about three years. And she's seen in the series. Um, and he knew a lot of people in the industry. And he went to the, a studio that he was always hanging around. And he ran into his friend, Milton Ingley. And he asked Milton, like, hey, can you play this Hi8 tape? He's like, sure, let's see what's on it. And when they began rolling the tape, Rand thought he had hit the lottery because the footage on the film, um, it was shot over the spring and summer of 1995, and it was about an hour long, and about eight minutes of that hour was Pam and Tommy having sex. And Rand and Milton Ingley were like, oh my god, cha-ching, we did it, we're gonna be rich, let's sell this thing. You know, we were made, we're made for life. Now that's the thing, Rand definitely got greedy because I'm sure to recoup this money, I'm sure the jewelry and everything that was in that safe, he would have been fine and it would have covered any of the money he was out. But he wanted to, for one, kind of get huge revenge against Tommy. And for two, he wanted to make a lot of money. So it was kind of that greed that was definitely his downfall. And him and Milton Ingley, I mean, they wasted no time. They got cracking. How can we start selling this tape? And they started contacting like every adult industry contact they had. But they got turned down left and right, time and time again. It's like me calling the tattoo parlors, just hang up, getting hung up on. And the reason was they had no release. The tape was stolen. I mean, people would watch it and be like, okay, this is amazing. So did Pam and Tommy sign off on it? And they're like, uh, no. And they're like, okay, bye. We're not we're not going to distribute a stolen tape because it's our ass on the line. And it's true that like porn back then was so strict. Like if there was no release, you were not um, going to be distributing this tape. So Milton and Rand, they still thought, you know, we're sitting on a gold mine we need to distribute this tape and figure out a way to do it. So since none of the established adult entertainment companies would do it, they decided to go to a group that had a little more of a skewed moral compass, and that would be the mob. And they approached um, Butchie Pireno, whose family actually had a history of organized crime, and they distributed pornography even when it was illegal in the 70s. So they had a little bit of a history with all of this. And even Butchie was kind of nervous to distribute it. But he knew that he could still make some money. So he offered a $50,000 loan to distribute to help uh, distribute the tape on the condition he would receive the loan back plus interest and a cut of the sales. So he was nervous, but he's like this. He saw the potential in it. So at this point, Rand Gautier and Milton Ingley had to figure out how to distribute this thing and distribute it anonymously. So they turned to the internet, and at the point, at this point, I mean, the internet—it was like talking movies, you know—in the twenties, like the internet was a fad. We were—we weren't going to see this in a few years. Like no one took the internet seriously, and at this time, only about forty million people worldwide had the internet. And comparatively to current day, about four and a half billion people have the internet. So definitely, um, a much different time. And they really thought, I mean, like the internet, this is like the perfect black market for consumers. And back then, you really could purchase anything you wanted on the internet. It was insane. And Ingley and Gautier really thought they were going to be rich. Like they this and Rand Gautier said, and this is a direct quote, he was looking at castles in Spain. Like he thought he was going to be an incredibly rich man. So Ingley, he used the first half of Perrano's loan, the $25,000, to set up some websites and run a few thousand copies of the tape. And of course, there was no streaming at the time. You couldn't log on to a website and, you know, watch the tape. But there was instructions on the website here. You can send a money order of $59.95. And you know I love my uh, inflation calculators on the Diving Board podcast. That would be about $115 in today's money. And kind of expensive, you know, to an NYC outpost of a Canadian t shirt company. And that money would be funneled to a bank account in Amsterdam. So, definitely a big scheme that our boys, uh, Milton and Rand, are running. And, uh, you know, orders came filtering in right away. And Rand began to distribute Pamela's hardcore sex video to people nationwide. And with Rand handling the distribution, Ingley, he had a good setup because he spent the other half of Perino's loan, the other twenty five thousand dollars, and skipped over to New York City, where he spent it on you know five hundred dollar bottles of champagne, hookers, cocaine, and rooms at the Plaza Hotel. Like just a sleazy version of Eloise. Um, <laughs> and another one of Ingley's lackeys, he was a guy named Steve, and he actually said to not use his last name, um, which I totally understand. He wanted a cut of the action and he actually began making tapes or he actually began making copies of the tape and selling them out of the trunk of his car for about 175 bucks a pop. So again, very expensive, but people wanted the tape and he made about $75,000 cash doing this. And he told Rand like, dude, Ingley is gonna screw us over. So you need to kind of get in on this, just protect yourself. Why don't you make a couple copies of it? And so you can, you know, have a little bit of protection. But Rand was like, no, 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 I'm staying loyal. I'm not doing that. And by the end of 1995, the Daily Mail actually did kind of a year in review that covered Pam and Tommy's tabloid at Antics and they made mention of the tape in it. And at this time, Pam and Tommy still did not know that the safe was gone. Again, this was a different time. There were no Google alerts. The Daily Mail is in London and that was in print at the time. I mean, I read the Daily Mail. It's a trash newspaper, but it's I will admit I sometimes read it and I can read it online now. You know, in 1995, if I wasn't living in London, I wouldn't be able to read the Daily Mail. It was in print, you know, totally different time. And so keep in mind, they don't know, Pam and Tommy don't know the safe is even gone yet. And by the middle of January 1996, they finally notice that the safe is missing. Tommy noticed it because he was moving around some recording equipment in the studio and Pam and Tommy, they weren't immediately concerned about the tape. Tommy was convinced, like, you know, we have a Rolex watch in there, we have Cartier jewelry, we have guns. Like, they're not gonna want this little high eight tape. Who cares? No one's gonna do anything about it. And didn't think that anyone would even be interested in it. But they immediately filed a police report and hired a private investigator named Anthony Pelicano. I honestly feel like I am narrating an episode of The Sopranos, and I am living for it. I've waited for this moment my entire life. I am ready for my close-up, Mr. DeVille. So um, that literally is what it feels like, though, with these names. Um, now, this PI, he was no nonsense. Actually, he was involved in a lot of nonsense, because side note, he was actually currently serving a 15 year sentence in prison for charges like that range from like identity theft to wire fraud. So he was a little bit of nonsense now that I think about it. But he was immediately able to track down Milton Ingley and be like, what the hell are you doing with this tape? And Milton Ingley actually said like, yo, I got the tape from their interior designer, which like they did not. <laughs> and, um, Pelicano he bombarded the interior designer, like, what the hell? Where's the tape? What do you know? And the interior designer is like, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about this. And he realized, OK, Milton Ingley lied to me. And a few days later, that guy Steve uh, was working in Milton Ingley's studio, you know, making some tapes. And he hears room, vroom from the outside. Motorcycle gang pulls up. Immediately, big bikers storm into the studio. It's the Hells Angels. Tommy Lee had hired them. I mean, because why not? He's Tommy Lee. And the Hells Angels had actually done security for Motley Crue. So they they had a relationship. So Hells Angels. Now they are the no nonsense guys. Big biker pulls in with a shotgun, immediately points it at uh, Steve's balls, demanding to know, like, where the hell is the tape? And he actually had a VHS with, um, Rand on the cover of it from one of Rand's porns that he had acted in from years prior. And Rand and Steve, they actually did look similar, like they were both kind of buff and they both looked very Italian. So the Hells Angels actually got Steve confused for Rand. And Steve said, like, I know the guy you're looking for, but it ain't me. We just look similar. And the guy said, he's like, "Okay, I believe you, but tell the real guy that I'm going to come back. And if he doesn't give me the tape, like I'm blowing his balls off. Steve's like, uh, okay. He tells Ran, like, yo, this motorcycle gang, the hell's angels, is is looking for you. So the Hell's Angels would actually come every few days. Sometimes they'd come twice a day. And if him and T- he uh, and if Rand and Steve were in the studio and they'd hear the motorcycles outside, they'd actually run out the side door and run to Steve's apartment next door. It's just insane. And Rand got extremely paranoid as a result. And he actually crashed at porn director Fred Lincoln's house for nearly a year. And he actually. And Fred Lincoln's daughter at the time says, like, she remembers Rand staying there. It was like Uncle Rand. And Pam and Tommy, I mean, they realized, like, this tape was spreading. And by March 1996, Penthouse got a hold of it. Now, Penthouse is kind of like the competitor of Playboy. So this also wasn't the best look because, again, Pam had a loyalty to Playboy. And this made Pam and Tommy panic. And on March 29, 1996, they filed a $10 million civil lawsuit against everyone they thought could have had a copy of the tape. Um, they filed it against Penthouse, Milton Angley, Rand Gautier, Dominique Sardell, Troy Tompkins, and the old interior designer. Just <laughs> like that dude had nothing to do with it. Side note, he's actually in the tape. Like he's wearing like a bucket hat, and like that's the interior designer. It's like, dude. And they're actually like giving him so much shit about it. It's so funny. So uh, the judge actually denied Pam and Tommy's motion, and the June issue featured Pam on the cover of Penthouse with a written description of the tape. And in August, an L.A. judge refused to grant the Lee's permission of a permanent injunction against Penthouse. I mean, in this country, there's freedom of the press. And since they received the tape from a source and didn't seal it, I mean, they were able to kind of write whatever they wanted and also in the film Pam is seen rolling a joint and since she had told the press the year prior like I don't do drugs which I don't consider smoking marijuana doing drugs but it's 1995 they do so uh this was considered newsworthy and you know they were able to talk about this tape and promote it and pique interest for people and you know penthouse was a huge publication so this was a really really big blow because this is just going to increase public interest on the tape but because they shot the tape themselves they were protected by copyright laws so penthouse couldn't publish image but they could write about it as much as they wanted and honestly that's almost even worse because the images maybe could like wet the appetite of people but like when you're when you're just reading about it people are intrigued and and want to see what it's about. Uh, The lawyer of Penthouse honestly was a huge slimeball moron, and he argued that since Pam had posed nude before, she actually forfeited her right to privacy. And that is an extremely absolutely disgusting argument. Um, The time she posed nude, she consented and was paid for that. So totally two absolutely different situations. Just an asshole. So with all of the legal cases and the biker gangs and Butchie Pereno lurking around looking for his money Milton Ingley he he needed to get the hell out of dodge he needed to get out of New York and he skipped over to Amsterdam so you know he's having the time of his life in Amsterdam and this left Rand to hold down the fort and profits of the operation i mean they began waning rather quickly because again they realized that someone gets a copy it really is not that difficult to make a copy of a vhs tape and begin selling copies of it on your own i mean i remember like we would make copies of movies and we had like a double vcr again this technology it sounds like i am like from the dark ages but like we had a double vcr and like we would make a it, like you put a blank v, a vhs on the top and like a movie in the bottom and you could copy that movie so quickly For legal reasons, this is a joke. Um, Again, I am looking for a call from Architectural Digest, not the FBI. So we never did that, actually. LOL. Just kidding. Um, But um, it was an extremely, extremely easy thing to do. And a wave of copycat websites just began popping up everywhere. And again, like Rand and Ingley, they just didn't understand, really, this is a new new way of life and you know it's just not how business worked anymore um so the money was very slowly trickling in but uh, but butchie pereno i mean bitch, better have my money he needed his money and ingley was able to get the original loan of fifty thousand dollars paid back but he was still owed interest and i mean this is the mob that's how they make their money is on extremely high interest rates. And Butchie Perino, he was actually sick. He had cancer. And Milton Ingley thought, OK, if I just ride this out in Amsterdam until Butchie passes away, we'll be absolved of this debt. But, you know, Rand was still Rand Gautier was still stateside and he had to deal with Butchie Perino. He wasn't, you know, in Amsterdam getting high in the red light district. He still was in L.A. having to fight this mob boss. And um, Butch Perrino was convinced that the operation was still going good, and money was still coming in, and it was just being hidden for him. But he couldn't get a hold of Milton Ingley, and nobody really could. Even Rand Gauthier couldn't. So he turned to Rand Gauthier, and he's like, "Where is my money? I still need to be getting a cut of these sales." So he invited Rand Gauthier over to dinner, and he actually got him wasted. He would like put tablespoons of sherry into his Merlot and he like made him eat all of these uh like Bing cherries soaked in Everclear and by this time like Ran Gautier was like obliterated he was so wasted and Perino just began interrogating him and Gautier said like I have no clue I don't know where Milton Ingley is I'm trying to get a hold of him I don't have any money and Butchie was like well one you're a moron but two I do believe you but three I Need my money still, so they made a deal that if Bushy Pirano kind of hires Rand Gauthier to be a collector from other people who have debts to him, that maybe they could work something out. And it's interesting, the show actually makes it seem like Rand Gauthier was like really weary to do this. It's funny how they make Rand Gauthier uh, appear on the show, and I think it's because they casted Seth Rogen, who I mean, like. I couldn't see Seth Rogen being, like, this, like, serious, like, fighter dude. But um, they make him seem, like, very awkward. And Rand Gautier really wasn't like that. Like, he was down to do this. I think he, like, he always said he was like, this is, like, a while he even says he's like I've lived such a wild life he said he's like I believe in the afterlife and when I come back like I need to have a more chilled out life like this is my vacation life so he's crazy like he um he was down to work for Butchie Pirano, and he said that when he was collecting debts he kind of developed his own system he like grew a beard and put on a baseball cap and he would like carry around a coffee cup full of ammonia and people would think like, oh, it's just coffee. He would splash it in the victim's face and he would break the victim's collarbone with a handle from a mop ringer to get the debt back. It's like, damn, like I said, this is an episode of The Sopranos and I'm living for it. So in October 1997, two years after the tape was initially stolen, a judge ordered Ingley to stop distributing the tape. But Ingley didn't really care at this point because by then it, it had gone too far. It doesn't really matter. Once the tape's out there, it's out there. And the tape was everywhere. I mean, college students, CEOs, everyone was watching this thing. Everyone had seen it. They were watching it at parties. It's out there and, and there's, there's no going back. So at this point, I mean, the internet is getting bigger and bigger and just exploding. And the younger generation is really taking this tape to new heights because like, they could figure out this technology. And this kid, Seth Warshofsky, he's 25 years old at the time. He's kind of a wunderkind. And he understood the internet really well and developing websites. And he had developed a site called Club Love. Cringe. Um, but Club Love was like, I'll give him a lot of credit it really was like a trailblazing site it was one of the first sites with pay-per-click ads streaming video online credit card transaction like he really was doing his thing with club love and it's really interesting to see like how that's technology that we couldn't really live without but that was like one of the first methods of that so honestly impressive. I mean, he didn't use it for good because Seth was a slime ball in the adult industry. People just didn't really like him. He wrote bad checks and he was just slimy. So very, very smart, but did not use that to help the world. And but he knew how to get things done and he wanted to make a lot of coin off of this tape. So one of his employees actually brought him the tape in Seattle and Seth, you know, gave him a few thousand bucks. And on November 3rd, 1997, Seth released a press release announcing he would be showcasing the video on his site Club Love. And though Pam and Tommy tried The judge refused to issue an injunction against Seth. They were like, no, he can he can do it. And on the next day, he aired the tape on Club Love on a loop for five hours. Like, what was 1997? Like, everyone's sitting on Club Love watching the Pam and Tommy sex tape for five hours. See, it was nice. Like, the economy was good. Like, people, it was it was just a different time. And you had five hours to sit and and watch Pam and Tommy on Club Love. Oh, my goodness, I can't. At this point, um, Pam and Tommy, I mean, they were over it. They were tired. And, you know, it was the end of December. Pam was getting ready to give birth to her second son, Dylan. They had already, you know, developed a family together. And I, re- I think they realized, like, the internet is getting bigger and bigger. And there was just no way to contain this tape anymore and people were getting smarter and it's it's been out for almost two years it's just what's done is done so they decided to settle with Seth and they were kind of under the false impression that they could give Seth permission to show the tape over the Internet, but that he couldn't sell it in stores. And again, this was kind of underestimating the reach of the Internet. People didn't really understand like what the Internet was still. They knew it was exploding and it was here to stay, but they still didn't understand like the power that it held. And Seth Warshawski really wanted to negotiate a deal that allowed him and his company to distribute this tape at the widest possible release. And they really hoped like somehow they could get the couple to sign away like their copyright rights. And they honestly thought this was the longest shot possible. But Seth had, uh, you know, hired this young attorney and they drafted up negotiations. And the attorney's like, they're not going to sign over their copyright of this film. Why the hell would they sign it over? But weirdly, they did. And on November 25th, 1997, Pam and Tommy no longer owned the rights to the tape. I mean, the literal curveball of the century. And, with, and Seth owned it now. And within days, Club Love servers were rocked. Anyone who had a subscription to Club Love had access to the tape low-key, I kind of want a shirt that just says Club Love. because <laughs> should, should that be the, the first uh, diving board merch? <laughs> I would wear it anyway. I mean, they had never seen traffic like this to Club Love ever before. And they said that they had thousands of sales a day every single day for months. And Seth Warshawski worked at a deal with Vivid Entertainment, and Vivid's like the leading adult video purveyor. And by uh, February 1998, anybody could walk into an adult store and just walk out with the tape. It was super easy to buy. I mean, you didn't have to buy it out of anyone's trunk. You just walked into a store. It's like, okay, here we go. And over the next few years, hundreds of thousands of copies of this tape were sold. Um, In the first few years of the tape's release, it actually brought in over one hundred million dollars. And, you know, we love our inflation calculator. That's one hundred and seventy five million dollars in twenty twenty two. And that's not counting pirated sales. I mean, there were so many people selling this tape out of their trunk. And, you know, it it sold so much more than just one hundred million dollars and i guess you might you might be asking yourself like what was the appeal of this tape like we understand pam is a superstar tommy is really really famous but like why does everyone want to watch this thing because it really was just like a cultural phenomenon and the thing that was so appealing to the tape was it really was kind of one of the first-hand looks of a celebrity's just private life. There were no Instagram stories and there wasn't anything like that. And you really just saw their home movies. You saw them on vacation. You saw them, you know hanging out with each other. It really was just a couple who was in love. It's really romantic. Yeah, there's like a sex scene in there, but that's not the majority of the tape. It's just like them hanging out. Um Howard Stern said it's the best tape ever because he really felt like he was on vacation with them. And Rand Gauthier said like he was actually jealous watching the tape. He's like, I would love to have an experience like that with somebody. Like they're just in love and enjoying each other's company. And I think like, Even people who weren't into porn or who didn't want to admit they were into porn liked watching this tape because it told more of a story. And, you know, it was just a couple in love and people were just drawn to that. Again, this was before Instagram. This was we didn't really know much about our favorite celebrities. So people people love this thing. And there's also a scene where Tommy Lee, uh drives the boat with his penis because his penis is quite big and he uh is driving it on the steering wheel I mean like I said just a cultural reset you you can't you can't make this stuff up it's just gold um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like i said the 90s were a different time um and at this time i mean milton ingley he was reeling his profits were done and uh i mean obviously he wasn't making any more money off this tape seth warshovsky really was the one who made bank out of this i mean he just came out on top of this deal and for rand i mean he was the lowest on the totem pole and he said you I mean Anytime you think of this tape, like he would start crying and he was quoted. He said, he's like, I was the one who worked so hard to make it work. And I think on the show, and maybe I'm just an empath, but on the show, the way Seth Rogen plays him, I kind of did feel bad for him because they kind of make it seem like he's like this like doofy kind of mopey guy and awkward. But like, no, Rand still broke into their house and violated their privacy and tried to make a lot of money off of this thing and just was not smart and trusted the wrong people. And like, yeah, it sucks that other people made money and he stole the thing. But yeah, I I mean, I can't I can't feel bad for the dude. And he's just a bad businessman. When Pam and Tommy learned that physical copies of the tape were being sold, they were pissed. They were furious. Or at least, I mean, it appeared like they were. But a lot of people think that them signing over the copyrights and, you know, signing over the rights of the film, they think that was a smoking gun that they settled for, you know, a sum of money. And like, honestly, how couldn't they? This tape was making so much money. They really deserve to, you know, get a cut of it. I mean, that softens the blow a little bit. If like your privacy is totally violated, at least get a little money out of it. And Ron Jeremy, you know, a really famous adult movie star, said that he asked Pam if they ever made any money. And she smiled and said, well, you know, but to this day, I mean... They say they never saw a dime from it. I watched the Watch What Happens Live from a couple years ago with Pam Anderson. And she told Andy Cohen like she they never saw any money from that. Do I believe it? Probably not. Um, why did they sign that away so easily? They probably had really smart attorneys. I think they're just saying that they didn't get um, any money from it. But I I I think they did. But of course, that's my own opinion. Um, For uh, reference, Paris Hilton, um, she settled for $400,000 from her sex tape and Kim Kardashian actually gets $360,000 annually from the tape. And that's the thing. Those tapes, and again, I don't want to accuse anyone of anything, those definitely are proper sex tapes. Most of that content is them having sex. Uh, And that was very different from Pam and Tommy's tape. Um, So I don't know, like I said, I'm not privy. I don't know if those tapes were leaked on purpose or leaked on accident, but they were more strategic in their content. You can tell Pam and Tommy did not want to leak this out because... uh, They just this is private home home tape. And I'm sorry if you hear that piano in the background. My neighbor just decided he's like Liberace tonight and is just tickling the ivory. So I guess we might have a little soundtrack if the mic picks that up. And by 2002, Warshawski's business had actually went defunct and he moved to Bangkok. A judge actually ordered him to pay Pam and Tommy uh, $740,000, but they never saw that money. And I'm thinking perhaps maybe that was part of their cut of the profits. I'm not exactly sure, though. Society was much different after this. Um, The story itself, you know, showcases a huge lack of ethics that has luckily, I mean, shifted in recent years when it came to the internet. When we have like this sex tape that got released, you know, Pam and Tommy's, and then we had Paris Hilton's and Kim Kardashians, and there was like Hulk Hogan had one that was released, and, you know, it's just a huge, huge violation of privacy. And for a long time, no one really thought much of it. And it was a huge kind of business. Yeah, it was a huge business. I mean, people for years have profited over violating people's privacy. You know, luckily, society has changed over the recent years because as of 2022, 42 states and Washington, D.C. have legislation against revenge porn. It is a federal crime now. So I'm hoping that that kind of uh, turns the tide, that people will stop profiting over you know people's misfortune. So we talk about how society changed after this tape and how technology was evolving as it was being distributed, but let's talk about like how it affected Pam and Tommy on a personal level. Um career-wise, Tommy definitely benefited from the tape. Um he was kind of like on his way out because he was a rock star from the 80s and that kind of like 80s hair metal was definitely It was it was past its prime when it came to the 90s. People were more into grunge music. I mean, the rock stars were like Chris Cornell or Kurt Cobain, you know, Scott Weiland. And Tommy Lee wasn't the number one guy anymore. But this film, uh, but this tape kind of cemented him as like just a true rock and roll legend. I mean, he has, quote, the biggest dick in rock and roll. So, I mean, people thought highly of Tommy after this and they were very complimentary to him and his boat driving skills. So he didn't really get any flack for this tape. Um, so the tape uh, for Pam, it really did kind of derail her career. She really couldn't come back from this. She wasn't taken seriously. In the series, it shows her starring in the film Barb Wire. I mean, that was a flop. And I don't think it was from the tape by any means. It just wasn't a good movie. But since Barb wire, she's had a really, really hard time landing any movie roles that really kind of, like I said, just derailed everything. Um, She was great in Borat. I actually loved her in Borat. Like, I actually believed it. When I was in high school, I was like, wait, is he actually kidnapping Pam Anderson? She was so believable. Do you know um, Kid Rock actually uh, divorced her for doing Borat? And... (laughs) <laughs> on their divorce papers like legally it says like reason for divorce borat <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> like, on a legal document people are so funny i can't <laughs> borat not borat so um you know, unfortunately, Tommy cites the tape as a major reason of the demise of their marriage. He said really the tape like consumed their entire marriage and added so much stress. I mean, yeah, this tape was filmed on their honeymoon and was stolen a couple months later and they have they really spent their entire marriage trying to squash this tape in and out of legal cases. I mean, it's really, really stressful. And by 1998, they had filed for divorce and, the tape played a role, but this, um, and the tape played a role, but Tommy, like I said, was a violent dude. He was very jealous and he got very jealous in 1998 because Pam was being too good of a mother and showing her sons more attention than she was showing Tommy. So uh, if that gives you an idea of the man Tommy Lee is, uh, he got physical with Pam because he was so jealous and Pam actually pressed charges and he served a four month and he served four months of a six month sentence. Um, He actually blames Pam for that. He said she, quote, didn't handle things right and doesn't know why Uh, she went through with pressing charges after he kicked her several times so um that's tommy lee for you uh he's actually involved in a physical altercation in 2018 with their son brandon and brandon actually sent tommy to the hospital uh they seem to have reconciled but when they asked pam and uh they asked pam about that fight and she said like he hurt tommy the way he's been hurting us our entire lives um which is like ooh. Damn. I mean, I can't say I disagree, but, uh, that's off the record. Um, they've reconciled, which is nice to see. Um, Tommy and Pam, they actually did try to get back together in 2008. And they said they gave their relationship their 801st try. Uh, but they broke up again in 2010. But Pam said, you know, she never fell out of love with Tommy. Really. He was the love of her life. And I mean, for a marriage that they met and they really only hung out for four days and then got married and honestly did last a lot longer than I would think. And Pam has been married several times since her and Tommy's marriage. Ironically, she was actually married to Rick Solomon two times. Like they got divorced and then they got remarried. And uh, you may remember that name because he was the guy who was in Paris Hilton's sex tape. That was Paris Hilton's boyfriend at the time. And he leaked that tape. Um, so ironic, you know, that, that Pam was married to him two times, you know, Hollywood is so weird. Just like this big web of craziness, Holly weird in the words of Andy Dick. Um, Pam also got married in 2020, but from what I heard a few months ago, she wants to get a divorce, but I don't know, um, if that's happening. I mean, Pam she's just a rolling stone and I live for it. I mean, I love Pam. She just lives life unapologetically and on her own terms. And I love it. Um, she's actually coming out with a Netflix stock and I'm extremely excited for it. So we'll definitely post that on Instagram when it does come out. As for Tommy Lee, um, he's of course married to a woman half his age now. She's in her thirties. Um, I see him on TikTok from time to time. Last summer, it was weird. Like he would show up on my For You page, and I'm like, "Is that Tommy Lee?" I'm like, "Who the hell said he could come in? <laughs> Who the hell? Why is the algorithm sending me him?" But you know, I'm just—he's just like sitting at his kitchen counter, like eating cereal. I'm like, okay. Um, again, I'm the mind blown emoji every second of the day. Um, he'll be 60 this year. So I hope he's kind of chilling out. You know, it's about it's about time. So, you know, for everyone, I hope he has a little more boundaries amazing tale no and again this is a lot of rand Gautier's story so we don't know if it's a hundred percent true but he definitely gave us a really good story you know as my sister says never let the truth get in the way of a good story so i think rand may have um echoed that sentiment as well but i certainly enjoyed uh hearing about it i uh, really showed you just like how technology involved evolved. evolved in the blink of an eye, you know, from the internet and just like how much our society has changed and how quickly it changed. I think this tape is just a complete symbol of that. And I think society luckily has gotten a lot better since then. I mean, we definitely have a long way to go, but we've evolved and I hope to continue to evolve but the show wraps up um this wednesday the final part the eighth part comes out so i'm intrigued to see how it'll all go down and um now you know the full story so you can kind of get inside my psyche of nitpicking everything with these shows of what's accurate and what's not. So welcome to my world. <laughs> it's a it's a ride. But thank you so much for listening. I really, really hope that this was interesting and you enjoyed it. Um, I had a lot of fun researching this and such an interesting tale. Like always on the Diving Board Podcast, we wish everyone involved godspeed. And hopefully they stay above the fray. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you got something out of it and learned some interesting facts. I learned a lot from researching and I just think Again, the story is so fascinating. So if you enjoyed this podcast, I would so appreciate it if you could please rate me, preferably five stars, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you are so inclined to write me a review on Apple Podcasts, I would be immensely appreciative it really helps legitimize the podcast and kind of motivate more people to listen so thank you so thank you all so much again for listening uh you can find me on diving board pod on instagram and as i wrap everything up i want to quote some motley Crue lyrics from the song primal scream and i think this really ironically exemplifies ran gotier And the lyrics go, if you want to live life on your own terms, you got to be willing to crash and burn. Thank you so much for listening to the Diving Board Podcast. I'll see everyone next week. Take care, everyone.